This morning, we're going to open up our Bibles here on Easter Sunday morning, and for the next 20, 25 minutes or so, we're going to learn a little bit more about how we get to this place of having a new beginning in Jesus Christ. Before we do that, we're actually going to introduce uh, this morning's message with, with a short video clip. The clip you're about to see is taken from a miniseries that's going to begin on NBC tonight called AD. It kind of picks up where the miniseries, the Bible, leaves off, and it covers the period of history beginning at the resurrection of Jesus Christ up through the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, which is kind of the birth of the church and the persecution of the church. It covers that kind of that season of history. So for the next couple of weeks, what we're going to be doing is the producers of the AD series have partnered with another Christian organization to allow churches to have access to one clip of what's going to be on the miniseries that night. Let me just be very clear. We're not going to be teaching a miniseries. Yes, they will take creative license, and so does every pastor who ever preaches. At the end of the day, if you have a question, go to the Bible. That's our ultimate source of truth. So your friends might be talking about this. I know you're going to have questions, so we're going to dig into the same passages that they're going to be presenting on the miniseries. But what you're going to see in a moment um, is a short four-minute video clip from tonight's episode that actually shows what might have been going on inside of the lives and the thought processes of several people who are very close to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. So in just a moment, you're going to see us, uh, we're going to look in on what might have been going on with the disciples, with the apostle Peter, with Mary Magdalene, and uh, even with as far as Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas, who are also very closely connected to that. So uh, if you just want to direct your attention to the screen, we'll take a look at this clip, and then we'll come back and talk about uh, Matthew 28 for just a few moments this morning. Let's look. his cross to Golgotha where they nailed him to it and raised him up for all to see it doesn't matter that you weren't there he understood our weakness he loved us for it died for it none of this matters now you heard the zealot. We need to leave before they find us. Before it's our turn to look down from Golgotha. You need to rest. No. It's been a stressful period. You've done exceptionally well to steer the community to calmer waters. With your support, as ever. We've used Pilate to great effect to protect us. Come to bed. I won't be long. The charge is blasphemy. He did. 
deserves to die! The seal has been broken. The tomb is now open and the Nazarene is gone. What do you mean, gone? How would you like the assignment of having to put in film what the resurrection might have looked like? I mean, I don't know that there's any way that you could kind of capture that. And I think it's pretty neat that they just kind of left some of that to your imagination, but... Um, it's a pretty compelling story. It happened historically, if you trust not only what the Bible says, but what other contemporary historians of the time you know, write about. They write about this particular event in history. And I want to read to you kind of uh, what Matthew, the gospel writer, writes about this particular passage. It's, it's in your sermon notes if you'd like to follow along with me. It's from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Here's what he writes. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women, don't be afraid, he said, I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying, and now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. So the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but they were also filled with great joy, and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. 
Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. Now, each of the historical figures that you saw represented in this particular clip of the movie that are lifted out of the the story that the Bible contains for us of Jesus' resurrection and of his crucifixion before that, they had to have some type of response to this event. They had to do something with it. So my question for you is, have you ever been unavoidably confronted with a situation that required or demanded a response from you? Have you ever just had your day interrupted by an event that you weren't looking for, but now that it's happening right in front of your eyes, you have to do something with this? Have you ever been in a restaurant minding your own business at the table and the waiter or waitress is going by and drops the entire tray of stuff all over the floor? Um, Have you had the uncomfortable experience of walking through a toy store or a place at the mall and seeing a parent spank or hit their child? Have you seen... uh, have you seen someone back their car into someone else's and, and keep on driving? There's all these different experiences. I remember uh, a few years back, I had gone to Walmart. Uh, this is when I was living in the South. I was living in Georgia, which is going to Walmart in Southern Georgia is just absolutely, you should put it on your bucket list if you've never done it. The people watching is just amazing. Um, and I went in there without a list, which is also a, a real struggle of mine. And so, you know, I went in there to get fabric softener and came out with a pack of socks and some earbuds and all these other things that were just there wanting me to buy them. As I collected my treasures and I'm walking towards the cash register, I walked past uh, the gift card aisle where a crowd was gathering. And I'm headed towards the register. I know I'm a man. Go and get the stuff, get out, pay. This is not like a recreational activity for me. And as I'm walking past the card aisle, I hear just very loud yelling, uh, profanity that I had uh, of a type that I had never heard before. And when I walk past the aisle, I see this young, uh, young Hulk of a man, sleeveless shirt tattooed here and there, tattooed up his neck, crazy hair, eyes bugging out of his head. And he is absolutely berating this little tiny elderly woman. He was just this menacing presence. He had his finger this close to her, and he's saying, you're an idiot. I can't trust you to do anything. You are a waste of the air that you breathe. And he is just laying into her. And there's this crowd gathering around them, and then I pass by, and he's about to put his hands on her. And I did what anybody else would probably do in my position. I just kept on walking. (laughs) I was confronted with a situation I wasn't looking for, and I had to respond to it somehow. You know, we do one of three things in these situations. Some of us just act. We jump in. We just think later and jump in right now. We respond. If they drop the dishes, we help pick them up. If we see someone back in the car, we stop the car and get out. We see a child in distress, we jump in and help. How many of you are like that? You're the act. You jump right in and help. Brian Griswold, thank you for being honest with yourself. We appreciate that. Then there's the observers. We're not sure whether to jump in or jump out or, you know, call the police or document it for YouTube. We don't know what to do here. So we don't quite jump in, but we don't jump in. We just kind of observe before we figure out what to do next. How many of you are the observers? Okay, so you must all be this last quarter category, the avoiders. <laughs> we just keep walking, going about our routine. We pretend as though we saw nothing because we, we, we would just say, you know, I shan't get involved. We just kind of just move right along in that direction. Now, that's generally me. 
I'm generally the guy who's like, oh man, let me just pretend that didn't happen or maybe someone else will come along. Or I, you know what you have to do though when you avoid something? You have to kind of play a little game with yourself. You have to subtly change the story in your own mind to feel better about walking away. You have to kind of say, well, maybe it's not my responsibility. Maybe there's a bigger picture going on. Maybe I don't have time. Maybe someone else will come along. Maybe I should just stay out. Maybe it's not what I think it is. You have to play some kind of game in your mind and actually alter the story a little bit to give yourself an out to move on. Now, I would love to tell you the end of the story. I don't know if we'll have time. We may come back to the end of the story later. But the point of the matter is every now and again, we are confronted by these unavoidable situations that demand a response. You act, you observe, you avoid, you do something with it. I want you to know that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is perhaps the most controversial, the most written about, the most talked about, the most highly debated historical event of all time. Either it happened exactly the way the Bible it says, and if so, it impacts all of us, or it's an act of fiction, and if so, it impacts all of us. Whether it's true or it's false, it has universal implications for every single man, woman, boy, and girl ever throughout all of history, whether it is right or whether it is wrong. And if we will just be intellectually responsible with this historical event, it demands a response. So I want to look briefly at three people connected closely to this story who were first person in real time immersed in these events, I want to look at three different ways that they responded to what happened. Here's the big idea. If you want to follow along your notes and fill in the blanks, cross them off as we go and count it down to the end, you can do that. The big idea, the main point is this. The death and resurrection of Jesus demands a response. The biggest question is how will you respond? This event demands a response. You must do something with this. In fact, you probably already have. But I'm giving you an opportunity this morning to consider if your first response should be your final response to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want to just take a look at three of the people closest to these events and how they respond to his crucifixion and resurrection. We're going to look at Mary Magdalene. We're going to look briefly at Peter the Apostle. We're going to look at Caiaphas the high priest. They all were right in the midst of everything that went on. They all responded differently to Jesus. Let's look first at Mary Magdalene. We read about her in the first verse. She was one of the first people to see Jesus when he arose from the tomb. Here's how Mary responded. Number one in your notes. Mary Magdalene chose to believe and follow Jesus to the very end. She just chose to accept him, who he was, and all of these events. She believed and followed. She believed and followed. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Mary Magdalene from the Bible. Here are the facts we know way early on. The gospel writer Luke writes about her real early on in Jesus' ministry, Luke chapter 8. Mary Magdalene, at that point, when she met Jesus, she found deliverance and a new beginning. All historical accounts say she was a very immoral, promiscuous young lady. And all we know is in Luke chapter 8, Luke says, from that time forward, several women started following Jesus as well. And he names some of them and he says, Mary Magdalene was one of these women. And she started following Jesus after he had delivered her from seven unclean spirits that lived inside of her. 
In other words, here was the deal. Mary wasn't necessarily looking for Jesus, but Jesus found Mary. And when he found Mary, she was living in a mess that she didn't even know how bad it was. There were things going on inside of her that were influencing all of her thoughts, all of her actions, all of her behaviors. And when Jesus met her, he set her free from those things. And immediately, and you have to watch this, her whole life transformed. She used to be promiscuous, and then she became very upright and moral. She used to be someone that everybody looked down on, but as we'll see later on, she eventually became a person of incredible trust and credibility, so much so that attaching her name to any of these accounts gave it validity in the early church. She went from being a person that was untrustworthy that everybody looked down to to someone who was pristine and someone who everybody looked up to. Her whole life was transformed, and that transformation was what cemented her relationship with Jesus. We see later on that she followed Jesus to the cross. Matthew chapter 27 names Mary Magdalene being one of the women who actually followed Jesus to the cross and watched that whole event. He also says she followed him to the tomb, and she was the first person to see him when he came out of the tomb. This promiscuous, messed up, woman becomes the greatest one of the greatest testimonies in all the bible of the transforming power and the hope of a new beginning and jesus christ he could have revealed himself to anybody else first but mary magdalene of all people why was she so loyal to jesus you have to catch this this is not meant to be cliche because from the moment she met him he transformed her life it wasn't just belief it was transformation. And perhaps her story is like, like yours a little bit today. Jesus found her and her life was completely transformed. The transformation in Mary's life validated her testimony for Jesus the rest of her life. It's interesting. If you read Mark's account, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four writers of the gospel, the four people who tried to capture Jesus' life and words as best they could. They all write about Jesus' death. They all write about the... Res- they all, you know reference the resurrection narrative it's interesting mark when he writes about the people who went to the tomb that jesus saw this is probably years after this happens here how he references mary at the end of the gospel he says and mary went to the tomb you know the one out of whom came seven unclean spirits and when i first read that i'm like oh that's just so unfair here's this woman who just can't ever shake her past and everybody's still writing about it years after she changed they're still looking at her as she used to be and i'm starting to get offended cuz like there's people that do that for me people that run into me oh yeah you're the guy who in high school did such and such and so and so oh yeah you're the guy who out of college you said that guy will never amount to anything you're the guy who i met 3 years ago and you were such a control freak and we couldn't deal with you at all and you were high strung and everything else and i'm just like at some point you want those things to just die and not follow you around and i read this story and i'm getting all I'm wounded in my heart for Mary. At the beginning of the gospel, they say she's the one out of whom came seven clean spirit, unclean spirits, and then she lives a good life and follows Jesus the whole way to the grave and the tomb, and they still are calling her that. Why are they doing that? Then it occurred to me, that's not why he's writing those things. He's not writing those things to shame her. He's writing those things because he knew who would read this gospel before you and I would get to it. He knew that people would be reading this gospel 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years who would know her personally. And if he put her name in the story, they'd believe it was true because she was somebody they could say, you can debunk Jesus all you want, but you can't argue with her changed life. She was there first. You remember, Mary, the one who used to be this and now is totally different. Like, look, I have tried about 57 different diets in my life. I have spent all kinds of money on personal trainers and people to help me. When I go into the gym, if I want to get a personal trainer, 
I want the guy that's cut and ripped to shreds. I don't want the guy that can barely stand up and come and walk to me, you know, that can't, you know, he can't even move. I'm looking at the person who it looks like they're in a place that I want to get to. They've bought into this whole thing. They live it. Mary Magdalene was the person that all said, listen, you can argue with anything you want theologically, but you can't argue with what happened in her life. And for the rest of her life, she was one who used to be this. And people would be like, no way. No way was she like that. I've met some of you, and I know some of your stories. I know there's some of you here who told me, you know, I know there's a gentleman here that I trust very deeply. We pray together regularly. He prays for me all the time, and he shared with me a couple months ago. He's like, yeah, man, when I was in my 20s, I was a hothead and profane and everywhere. I'm like, you're lying. There's no way. You're the most gentle, meek, humble, God-honoring man I know. He's like, that's the transforming power of Jesus at work in my life. Maybe your story's like Mary, or you want it to be like Mary's. I believed, but I didn't just believe. Jesus came into my life. I used to be a person that was a hothead, but now I'm a person who's a peacemaker. I used to be uptight and anxious, but now I live with a sense of perspective and hope and peace, and my identity is rooted in Christ. I used to root my identity in my performance, in my behavior, in my wealth, and my stuff. Now my identity is rooted in Jesus Christ inside of me. I used to be impatient, and now I'm patient. I used to be grumpy and angry all the time, and now I have mercy for people. The truest evidence of Jesus making progress in our life is when things come out of me that look like Jesus and that just start to happen organically. It just starts to happen. Things that used to be so foreign to me start to become natural because he's transformed our lives. Mary believed and she followed. But what about Peter? Peter, the apostle, chose to believe, but then he faded. He folded. He failed due to a lot of fear and guilt. Now, here's the thing about Peter. He's one of my favorite characters in the New Testament because if I can identify with anybody, it's him. Peter was an easy-to-root-for, yet tragically flawed person. He was a strong, hard-working, entrepreneurial man. He was a small business owner. He had employees that worked under him. He was a rock of a man. His name meant rock. By all historical accounts, he was very strong, very able-bodied, very muscular, very durable, a commanding presence. Peter loved Jesus, and he knew him personally. By all accounts, there wasn't many other human beings closer to Jesus Christ for three solid years than Peter. Peter was the first to obey He was the first to speak up and give the right answer. He was always the first to volunteer. He was the only one to get out of the boat, and he was the last disciple standing when Jesus was in his final hours. He was, watch this though, he was absolutely a believer in Jesus. He believed everything that Jesus said about himself and followed him because of it. We read it in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says, who do people say that I am and who do you think that I am? And Peter was the only one who had the right answer. Out of all of them, Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of God. He said, absolutely. You got it right. Peter believed Jesus. His theology was spot on. He loved Jesus. He worked for Jesus. He served Jesus like many of us in this room. We believe him. Our theology is spot on. We know the Bible. We cry during worship. We might even serve in a ministry. We might lead worship. We might preach the Bible to people. We might share our faith at work. We might give of our finances generously. We might go and do outreach and do missions trips. A lot of the same characteristics to Peter. Peter, perform, 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 perform. Was there anybody else in history who, after three years of personal mentorship of, under Jesus himself, had such an epic failure? as Peter. He was still tragically, hopelessly flawed. 
You see, Peter was obsessed with his performance. He thought the way to maintain relationship with Jesus was to impress him by what he did. To do more than, to answer louder than, to last longer than, to obey quicker than, to outperform and somehow impress Jesus. The only thing was, Jesus didn't buy any of that, did he? In fact, right before he went to the cross, Jesus says, I'm going to a place that none of you can come along with me. And Peter says, oh, everybody else, everybody else will underperform, but not me. I'm better than the rest of them, Jesus. I know my Bible better. I love you more, and I will prove it to you by outperforming. And once again, here's Peter making a pledge and a commitment to Jesus. He had no ability to live out, and Jesus knew it. He loved him in spite of it, and he called him on. He said, Peter, you're not as great at performance as you think that you are. I know even before the sun rises, you'll fail three times. But what he's really saying, and none of that stuff is what makes me love you. And none of that stuff is how you earn relationship with me. Because relationship with me is given and offered and accepted. It's not earned and it's not maintained. It is, it is given freely to you. But Peter didn't get it. He believed. He believed. And yet there was no transformation in his life. Before he came to Jesus, he was all about performance. He rooted his identity in what he did and how well he did it and by comparing himself to everybody else. And Jesus had to go to the cross to set him free from that. So you know the story, or if you don't, you can kind of follow through in in Luke chapter 22 if you'd like to read it later on. Was Peter a believer? Did he love Jesus? Absolutely. But when Peter was about to be put to the test in a moment of fear, he lied. When he had a chance to tell the truth and put himself in danger or tell a lie and get off scot-free, he lied. He was two-faced. He was a hypocrite. He took the easy way out. He faded, he folded, and he failed. And as a result of that, Peter was consumed with guilt. Here's the good news, and here's the hope for Peter's new beginning. The moment he failed, he realized it. And he felt terrible. So much so that he ran out and put himself in isolation. He was consumed with guilt and fear. We're not let in on so much of what was going on in his mind. Have you ever messed up so bad that nobody could punish you worse than you were punishing yourself? That's where Peter was. He kind of put himself in a self-imposed exile. And notice Jesus let him there for a little while. And then he went and got him later on. The beautiful thing is that in John chapter 21, we see that after Jesus rose from the dead, he went and found Peter. He forgave him. He restored him. But even when he finds Peter, he lets him sit in silence for a little while because it's healthy sometimes for us to just kind of really weigh out our failures. The good news is that Peter's failure wasn't final. But he, at the time that Jesus came to him, look, Peter's life was miserable between when he denied Christ and when Christ came and consumed him. He entered into a period of time, a, a thought came through my mind that I'm writing some about now that I don't know if I'll teach on anytime soon, this idea of miserable Christianity. It's an oxymoronic statement because Christianity is not miserable, but I see a lot of people who just live a miserable Christian life. You know what miserable Christianity is? It's what Peter was living in that period of time. It's all about religion, but no relationship. It's all about trying without transformation. It's all about my performance and not about Christ's performance in me. And when you live that way, all you look forward to is hoping you get to heaven. And all you have to look at is your own performance and how hopelessly flawed it really is. All you have is a bunch of rules with no joy and no mercy and no grace. And all you can do is compare yourself to everybody else and feel better or worse about yourself. That's miserable. And that's not Christianity. 
It's not about how much you perform. It's about what is Jesus doing inside of you and letting him perform and you just let him out of you. There, rather than trying this accelerated behavior modification experiment, you can, go to, you can go to the bookstore or download a bunch of books on how to change yourself. All of them are imperfect. At the end of the day, there's only one person who can change us from the inside out. There's only one thing Peter needed that was genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe his story is like your story today. Maybe you'd say, Pastor, I do believe in God, and I love him, and I believe in Jesus, but I've faded. I'm not who I used to be in Jesus. I love him, but I don't feel that transformation. I don't live the life of joy and satiety that Mary Magdalene lives. I'm faded. I'm flawed. Maybe you'd say, you know, I base my spiritual identity on my performance, on how frequently I go to church and how much I give and how many ministries I volunteer. And, and maybe everything about my relationship with God. If I ask you how you know you were a Christian, you'd say, well, I'm kind, I'm good. You'd start listing accomplishments and behaviors. That's miserable Christianity. That's not the type of thing that Jesus went to the cross to die to provide. He died to deliver us from that type of bondage of thinking it's all about our performance. It's all about him performing in you. Maybe you believe, but if you're honest, you're living in miserable Christianity. It's all religion. It's all rules. It's all failed attempts at behavior modification. It's empty, pointless, flawed rituals. Maybe you can find what Peter found, a new beginning, when Jesus just comes and says, do you love me? Yes. Then let's get back on the horse and let's keep moving forward together. He still has a plan for you, and I want you to find relationship with Jesus that's joy-filled and life-giving and transformative, not just empty rituals we do week after week after week. Finally, let's look very briefly at Caiaphas as I hurry to close. Caiaphas, we won't talk much about this morning. There's much to be read about Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest, and there's so much to say in the backstory of Caiaphas. And just in a summary statement, he had a lot of power. In that day and age, there was a complex arrangement between the Romans and the Jews at the time of Jesus Christ. The Romans were the ruling empire, but they kind of, in some ways, were very leery of the Jews and knew that if the Jews would would rise against them, that they'd have numbers on them. And so there was this political and religious tension. So the Romans kind of let the Jews still carry out their own laws, but they didn't have a government separate from their religious system. So the high priest was kind of like the head of the government, the head of the politics, and the head of the church. He had a lot of power. Caiaphas was that person at this time, and Caiaphas was not a fan of Jesus at all. Here's what we see about Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the high priest, chose to deny Jesus' claims of himself, and then he ultimately altered the story. Caiaphas refused to believe that Jesus was really the son of God. And he did it. And I don't really know exactly why he did it. One of the things was self-preservation, because here's the truth. Caiaphas realized if he really is the son of God, everything about my life will have to change. Everything about my job, everything about my power, everything about the way the people look at me, my job changes. I've often wondered, did Caiaphas at any point along the way just stop and think, what if he's right? What if Jesus is really who he says he is and I'm wrong? I don't know if he thought about it or not. I have no idea. But if he did stop and think about it, he would come to no good conclusion. Just the, the thought, how would you like that weighing on you? If he's right, I've just murdered the Messiah. Well, that can't possibly be right because that's too unstomachable for me to even go down that trail in my mind. So even more than me, because if, if I murdered the Messiah, then I am ultimately guilty and I'm worthy of death. And everything. Exactly. And we all are. But he got stuck there. In an act of self-preservation, he used his position of power and influence to try and suppress Jesus and ultimately put him to death. 
Matthew chapter 26 tells us about that. He even went further by trying to eliminate any possibility of a resurrection hoax. If you read in Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66, we see that Caiaphas and the high priests were so uptight, even after they put Jesus in the tomb, they said, put guards out there because we don't want to put it past. We've heard all this talk of him raising from the dead, and we certainly can't have that happen. And I bet his apostles might want to make it look like it happened, so it wouldn't be beyond them to sneak in late. See, he was a conspiracy theorist way early on. He's like, these guys might come in the middle of the night and steal Jesus' body and stage a resurrection thing. So let's put a seal on the tomb and let's put guards out there in front of it and make sure, make sure that none of this stuff happens. And on a side note, I've been to Israel within the last 12 months and something they didn't include on the tour that I have documented that I wish I had time to show you today and I don't. They're, they found recently within the last year, and I have pictures of it and that I touched it, they actually found uh, Roman, uh, the, what is something in the stone next to the tomb that looks like a little piece of, of, of metal about that big looks like iron, and it's wedged, pounded in the stone, and it's broken off at the end. I asked the one tour guide about it, and they said, well, we can't really go into it. We're still testing what that actually is. They have tested it. It is Roman iron dating back to the first century B.C. It looks like they actually, rather than actually putting a wax seal on the tomb, they took steel and pounded it in on either side so you couldn't move the stone, and there's part of it that's still there. It just adds a little more credibility to the whole thing. It's pretty amazing. But uh, regardless of whether you accept that or you don't, it's still, it's still an interesting thing. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't, if I need all this empirical evidence, it doesn't take any faith on my part. But all the evidence, I think, is still there anyhow. But when Christ ultimately defeated death, Caiaphas and leading priests changed the story. You saw the clip end off here when they said, hey, he's gone. What do you mean he's gone? You know what he does right after this? He concocts a story. He says, listen, we, this can't possibly be true. They paid off the guards to start a conspiracy theory. And they started spreading among everybody. His disciples snuck in the middle of the night, overpowered, you know, these disciples overpowered the whole Roman guards. And they took Jesus' body out, and they're hiding it somewhere, which we still haven't found, incidentally. And uh, it didn't really happen. You know, it looks like this is not what it really is over here. He does what all of us do when we try to avoid the truth. We have to change the story. We have to change the story. I just want to close by saying this as our worship team comes. If you choose to deny Jesus, you have that option today. See, it's... Everybody has the right, in my opinion. Everybody has the right to say yes or say no to Jesus. Everybody has the right to respond to the story however you want. And I want to be very careful this morning. I don't want to come across as intellectually arrogant and just dismiss all of the historical criticism of the Bible and just wash it away. That's being intellectually irresponsible. Please don't hear me saying that. But in that realm of being intellectually responsible, I would encourage those who who believe other than I do to at least acknowledge this. If you choose to deny Jesus, that is your right to do, but then you must play some kind of, a, of an intellectual game here, okay? You must effectively alter the story as presented by the Bible because the only way to avoid Jesus, the only way to pass by him is, to, is that you must make Jesus out to be somebody other than who he claimed to be. It's the only way we can do it. You have to fictionalize him. You have to debunk what he said about himself and just say, even though he said he was this, I don't believe it. You have to deny your own need of him. You might say he was who he said he was, but I don't need a savior. It's intrinsically impossible to willfully reject Jesus and his death and his resurrection and his free gift of a new beginning without also willfully altering the story. For you to say, I'm going to look at this event and just keep on going. You have to kind of change the story enough to feel good about that. 
Or the other possibility is you could say, I do believe. I believe he's everything he said that he was. I believed he lived a sinless life. I believe he was the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. I believe when he hung on the cross, he took the penalty for all of my sins. Every time I broke God's moral law, he paid off my penalty and satisfied it. And God accepted it as a payment for me. And all I have to do is just ask God to apply it to my account. And I too can have relationship with God through Jesus. And I need relationship with God. And I need my life to be transformed. And the only way it's going to happen is if this is possibly true. It's survived this many years. It stood up to all this criticism. And I can look around the room and I can point to this person and that person. That person and say they obviously had a transformation experience. Maybe it is all true. And maybe I do believe. And maybe I will accept. And maybe I will be transformed. It's your option today. It's your option. So as in conclusion, it's time to respond this morning. I just want to ask each of you in the room, how do you respond to the news of Christ's death and resurrection today? Do you respond or have you already responded like Mary Magdalene? Do you believe that Jesus is everything he claimed to be? And do you accept his death and resurrection as payment in full for your sins? Will you accept his offer of salvation and deliverance for you today? Will you believe and follow him to the end? Many of you say, I've already made that decision. I believe. I follow. I've had my life transformed, but maybe that's what you need today. You're saying, up to this point, I haven't made that decision, but today I'm going to make that decision to believe and to follow and to invite Jesus Christ into my heart and to transform my life from who I am and to who he is. Are you like Peter today? Is your response like him? Have you believed, but you faded? You failed. You find yourself flawed. You find yourself living in a kind of miserable Christianity. You you believe in the facts and you've accepted things intellectually, but there's been no life transformation. It's all about the rules. It's all about behaviors. It's all about your performance as if those things are somehow impressive to God. Maybe today you need to taste what true, life-giving, joy-filled Christianity is all about. Jesus in you. Jesus transforming you. Do you find yourself rehearsing your own guilt and failures? Do you find Christianity miserable? Why not do what Peter did and receive forgiveness and restoration and a new beginning from Jesus today? Or do you respond like Caiaphas? Do you find yourself still skeptical, unconvinced, being presented with the facts as the Bible records them? Do you choose to willfully reject this event, preferring your version to the version presented in the Bible? Do you choose to pass Jesus by rather than immersing yourself in the person of Jesus? It's your choice to make. It's your choice to make. I just want to present you with an opportunity to believe and to be transformed and to follow. Let's pray together this morning. Can I just ask you just in a moment of privacy, just all across this room to bow your head and close your eyes. Just a moment, our worship team's going to sing. We're going to celebrate. We're going to go watch kids put Easter eggs in cartons. It's great. We've got a lot of good fun things going on yet today. Most important thing, the reason why we came and we set up this church and someone invited you to come to church today is for this moment right now. If you're in the room right now and you say, my response has been kind of like Caiaphas, but today I want a new beginning. I want to start things over. All we have to do is follow the pathway of Peter. We accept and own our own failures. We ask Jesus to forgive us of those things. Immediately he does. And we invite him into our life to begin the process of transformation and change. That's all that it is. And friend is waiting for you right now. And all you need to do is just with your mouth, Paul says in Romans, confess that you believe Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you will be immediately saved. 
Let me lead you through what that is. You can follow a pattern just like this. You can say this from your own lips, even as I'm saying it, a prayer that just says, Dear Jesus, I have sinned and I have fallen short of the example you've set for us. I accept my guilt. I also believe, Jesus, that you are everything the Bible says that you are. You are the Son of God, the God-man who came and lived a sinless life and died a death on the cross and you rose again from the grave to defeat everything. I invite you, Jesus, into the center of my life. Please forgive me of my sins and transform me and make me more like you. I can't do it on my own. But if you will lead me, I will follow. For those of you that might say, I believe, but I'm a little faded and flawed like Peter. I think you know the pathway back to Jesus. It's just simply ownership of where you're at and asking him to forgive you, asking him to redeem you, asking him to restore you. And just like that, he does. Why not make today a historic Easter for you? Why not make today the day you say, I'm going to leave this miserable Christianity of trying to prove my worth to God behind, and I'm just going to let Jesus live through me. And I'm going to let him change and transform me. And I'm going to have relationship, not just religion. I'm going to have transformation, not just a bunch of trying. It's all about Christ's performance in me, not me performing for myself. If that's what you want, friend, then just reach out and take hold of that from Jesus today.